Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I really appreciate that you joined us today because we're in our group learning program studying chapter 12 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. Chapter 12 is titled, Craving is the Problem, What is the Solution? This is a great time right here in the middle of the book to revisit the number one problem in the mind that's causing discontentedness. This is the primary problem that the Buddha discussed that is causing all of these discontent feelings, the pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So all the anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, all of these discontent feelings and others are all being caused by the same primary problem. And once you understand this problem, you can have the breakthrough to understanding what's causing the mind to be shaken up like this. And once you understand the problem, then you can start implementing the solution. And today we're going to be talking about the problem and we're going to be talking about the solution. We talked a bit about this in earlier parts of this program. When we first started, we talked about the three universal truths, the four noble truths. Later, we talked in chapter four about the three universal truths and the four noble truths. And then here again, I'm sharing with you the three universal truths and the four noble truths because it's such an important topic that you understand these teachings in detail. This is what's going to help a practitioner establish right view. Without right view, you wouldn't be able to make any progress on this path whatsoever. And hearing the three universal truths and the four noble truths just once or twice, even three times, it's really not enough. Oftentimes, students need to hear it more than one time, you know, several times as part of this path to enlightenment for it to really soak into the mind and be able to have this breakthrough where when the mind is shaken up and you're experiencing this discontentedness in your life, that you'll understand why. So in class, you might learn the teachings and you might understand it from an intellectual perspective. But then in your daily life, as you start observing that the mind is discontent, you might have a real struggle and real difficulty with seeing how craving is the problem that's shaken up the mind. So in this book and in this program, we actually visit this topic multiple times to ensure that practitioners deeply understand that craving is the problem and then understand the solution to the problem. Throughout this program, we've been talking about different things at different times. 
And now that we're starting to get deeper into the book and into this program, we're going to start connecting things for you because you've explored enough of the teachings, kind of a foundational level of teachings that now we can start connecting some things for you and start showing you how these things remedy one versus the other. So I'd like to thank all of you for joining, whether you're attending live in Zoom or Facebook or YouTube, if you're listening this on the replay in our podcast or anywhere else that we stream to. I really like to share with you that I admire your dedication and your diligence to continuing to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha, because as you do, it's only helping you, those around you and all of humanity as your mind becomes more and more peaceful. Because in order to move this mind to enlightenment, where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, having eliminated discontentedness, you will need to understand the natural laws of existence. These are the teachings of the Buddha. And what's been transpiring throughout our life in the unenlightened state is that we don't understand these natural laws. We don't understand what we don't understand. The Buddha caused this ignorance or delusion or the unknowing of true reality. He also calls it confusion, that the mind is confused about these natural laws of existence, and that's why it stays in the unenlightened state. We are unknowing of true reality. We're ignorant to these natural laws, and because we don't understand what is the problem, then we don't understand the solution. And with wrong view, we end up going around blaming other people and we blame other situations and circumstances for our discontent mind. And because we don't know the problem, we just blame others. Therefore, we never actually solve the problem. So it's not until we awaken to the wisdom of the Buddha that we understand true reality, that we truly understand the problem. And through deeply understanding the problem in the unenlightened mind, then we can start focusing on the solution and make real progress in our life. Rather than blaming other people, we can actually make real progress because we understand the problem clearly and therefore we understand the solution clearly. So that's what I'm going to help you do today is to learn these natural laws of existence in a way that builds you up and builds this foundation where you understand the wisdom of the Buddha and you can awaken to this wisdom. When we say awaken, what we're really saying is shedding this ignorance and acquiring this wisdom. That's what it means to awaken, is you're gaining this wisdom. You're walking towards the light. You're gaining wisdom. Or you're moving closer to enlightenment. You're gaining this wisdom. And we've done this in other parts of our life. As we were growing up, there were many things that we didn't understand as an infant, as a toddler, as a adolescent, as a teenager, as we've grown, there were many things that we were ignorant about or we had unknowing of true reality. One of the ones that I often talk about to help you understand this process of awakening the mind is the natural law of gravity. We were all unawakened to the natural law of gravity. We were ignorant of this natural law. We were unknowing of true reality as we were growing up. At the age of six months or the age of 12 months, at the age of two, three, four, five, six, we didn't understand the natural law of gravity. We didn't have the wisdom of what was happening. We just knew that when we stood up, we would fall down and we would hurt ourselves, or we would put our toys somewhere and they would fall and break. 
or we would knock over a glass of water and it would break and it would spill everywhere. And we would cry. We would be so upset when these things would happen. We would get on a bicycle or a skateboard or roller skates or rollerblades and we would fall down and we would hurt ourselves and we would cry and we didn't quite understand what was going on. We just knew that we kept falling down. We hadn't awakened. We didn't know the wisdom of this natural law of gravity. But slowly and surely, we gradually learned about this natural law. And as we did, we started to be able to function with this natural law much better. We learned things like look at the ground when you're walking and look at the sidewalk and see if it's even and flat. Step up on the curb. And if we see an uneven surface, go a little bit slower. We learned things like tying our shoes and making sure that the shoelaces were really tight and they didn't come undone, or maybe switch to Velcro or something like that, or flip-flops. We learned all these different things. We learned to put our nice glasses, our nice plates, things that we weren't interested in having broken. We learned to put those in a special place so they wouldn't fall down and get broken. We learned all these different things about the natural law of gravity because we awakened to the wisdom of it. And then we made better decisions in order to function within this natural law of gravity in a way that we could be peaceful and that we understood how this natural law functions and how it works. So then we could make wiser decisions around this natural law of gravity. And then you realize that when you fall down, maybe now you actually start laughing if you fell down at this point in your life, right? Because you understand, ah, the silly gravity. But there's all these other natural laws of existence that the mind is unawakened to. And that's why it's struggling and having difficulties in the world to make certain wise decisions because it doesn't understand these natural laws of existence, just like we didn't understand the natural law of gravity. We struggled and it was really difficult during those early years of our life around the natural law of gravity because we didn't understand what we didn't understand. We didn't understand true reality. But the more we awakened to that wisdom, then we started making wiser and wiser decisions. And it's the same thing with the Buddhist teachings, that his teachings are sharing with you the truth, the natural laws of existence, so you can see that truth for yourself. With gravity, you gradually started being able to see the truth, that when your legs weren't strong enough, you would fall down. Or when you hold a certain object and you let it go, it would drop and it would break. You could see the truth for yourself with this natural law of gravity because you independently verified that yes, this natural law of gravity is the truth and I just need to learn how to function within this natural law of gravity. Well, the universal truths that the Buddha taught in the Four Noble Truths, these natural laws that I'm going to be sharing with you today, they're the same way. You can't believe them. If you believe them, you don't know if it's true or false. You don't know what the truth is. So while I share the teachings with you today and you learn, you should learn them, but don't believe them. And then after you learn these teachings, you then reflect on them and try to see if they're true or not. And then you practice these teachings in order to acquire the wisdom, this independent verification. When you see the truth for yourself, then you know 
with 100% certainty what the wisdom of these natural laws are. And now with that wisdom, your mind is more awakened and you can start making wiser decisions in the world about your personal and your professional relationships, about certain choices you make in your life, about things that you do and how you interact in the world. You're able to start making wise decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes. This is the wholesome gamma. You can awaken from this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality instead of making unwise, unwholesome decisions that lead to unwholesome results, you can awaken to the wisdom, make wise decisions that are wholesome, that lead to wholesome results. But in order to accomplish that goal, you can't believe anything that I say. You can't believe anything that's written in any of these books that I wrote. You need to look at the teachings and learn them, deeply learn them. Talk about them, discuss them, ask questions, get clarification in these classes and outside of these classes. Reflect on these teachings and see if they're really true or not. And then practice them, interact with them, apply them to your daily life and see if it's actually true. And that's how you independently verify the teachings and you acquire wisdom, awakening the mind through this wisdom so that you can get to this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Why is it so peaceful? Well, you're purifying the mind, but through awakening the mind, you understand these natural laws. So now you can start making decisions that you completely understand because you no longer have this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality the mind can be at ease. It can be peaceful when it understands these natural laws because it's a real struggle and it's extremely difficult to live in a world that we don't understand. When you are interacting in a world and you live in a world that you don't know the natural laws, it's a real struggle. It's really difficult. This is why early in our life, when we were six months old, when we were two years old, when we were six years old, it was a struggle. It was so difficult because we didn't understand the natural law of gravity. We just didn't understand it. So we kept falling down and we kept getting these scrapes on our elbows and our knees. And we would come in and cry to mom and cry to dad and grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles. And we would just cry. We were miserable because we struggled and we had all these difficulties because we didn't understand the natural law of gravity. But like I mentioned, now if you fell down, you wouldn't go cry to mom because you understand what it is. Your mind can be at ease. It can be peaceful. So the same thing is happening now that we're older. The physical body has gotten older, but the mind hasn't awakened and gained this wisdom of these natural laws of existence. And this is why an unenlightened being is going to struggle and have difficulties because we're essentially falling down. We're tripping over our feet. We're falling down and getting these boo-boos where we're having trouble in life and we're having these struggles and difficulties. And sometimes you might just cry because it's such a struggle. But when you learn these natural laws and you gradually awaken to them and you have this wisdom and you get help from your teacher to understand these natural laws, 
then your mind can be at ease and it can be peaceful because you understand this world that you're living in. It will no longer be a struggle and difficult because you understand these natural laws. You can make those wise decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes. So I'm going to walk you through today learning the three universal truths and the four noble truths in a way that you can learn them, not believe them, learn them, reflect on them, and then practice them in order to awaken to this wisdom and acquire wisdom around the Buddhist teachings and independently verify the truth. So as we go today, I'm going to be pausing at different times, opening up for questions, whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put your questions into the comment section or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you like because it's important that you understand these teachings so that you no longer experience these struggles and difficulties. But just like you gradually awaken to the natural law of gravity, the mind needs to gradually awaken to these natural laws too. That's why you can't just listen to the universal truths once or read the Four Noble Truths once and then you got it. You can't do that because you didn't do that with gravity, so you're not going to be able to do that with these either. And this is why in this program we talk about these more than one time to give you a chance to really soak it in and have this breakthrough. So the first of the three universal truths that I would like to share with you is called impermanence. This is where you need to understand that everything is constantly changing, that there's no permanent fixed state other than enlightenment itself and the natural laws of existence. Enlightenment, the natural laws of existence, and once you learn about unconditioned feelings or unconditional love, these things are permanent. But all these other things in the world are all impermanent. So all these material objects, anything that you see with your eyes, it's impermanent. Anything you hear, any sounds you hear, they're impermanent. Any odors that you smell, they're all impermanent. Anything you taste, any flavor, it's impermanent. Any physical object that comes in contact with the body, it's impermanent. Any thoughts or mental objects that come to the mind are all impermanent because these are conditioned feelings or conditioned thoughts. They arise, they change, and then they fade away. So all of these things are impermanent. Okay, This is the universal truth of impermanence. But you don't believe this. You never believe anything that I say or anything you see in writing. You test it in order to determine if it's truth or not. And the way that you can test this universal truth, because the Buddha is sharing with us about all these things are impermanent, is you look around you and you try to find something that's permanent. If you can find something that's permanent, then you've disproven the Buddha. So you think, is this physical body permanent or is it impermanent? Has it stayed exactly the same from the moment you were born until now? Or is this physical body changing? Is it growing? Is the skin texture changing? Is the color of the skin changing? Is the hair changing? Is the, your facial complexion changing? Is your appearance changing, right? Of course, it's been changing your whole life. This physical body's always constantly changing. What about your relationships in your life? Have you had exactly the same people in your life 
from the beginning all the way until now? Or have people been coming and going in and out of your life? Of course, they've been coming and going. What about the jobs that you've had? Have you had exactly the same jobs your entire life? Has your income been exactly the same? Of course not. Things have been constantly changing. Have you slept in the same exact bed your entire life? Or have you changed different locations and slept in different locations? You've slept in different locations, right? There's all these things that are constantly changing. We have different clothes. We have different vehicles, different transportation. We eat different food every day, pretty much. We have all these changes that are happening in our life. So this first universal truth, it's imperative that you understand this and that if you don't have independent verification of the universal truth of impermanence, you need to look around you until you soak it into the mind that all these things are impermanent. And you can ask questions during the question period. If you feel that something is permanent, share that. And then I can help you see and evaluate whether it's permanent or impermanent. So that's the first universal truth. The second universal truth is discontentedness. In a lot of Buddhist communities, you'll hear this discussed as suffering. I'm going to explain to you what is discontentedness, and then later we will talk about this topic of suffering. This universal truth of discontentedness or discontented or discontent, it's these three feelings. The Buddha used the word dukkha during his life or at least in the Pali canon, it has the word dukkha. And when he talks about it, he talks about three feelings. He talks about a pleasant feeling, painful feeling, and a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant. What a pleasant feeling is, is something like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria, and all these others. This is where the mind goes into this excited state. These excited feelings come into the mind based on some condition. You got a new car, so you're excited. You got a new pair of shoes, you're excited. You got a new friend, you're excited. You got a new pair of clothes, you're excited. You got a new computer, you're excited, right? There's all these pleasant feelings that come into the mind based on some condition. That's a conditioned feeling. The happiness arises, it changes, and then it fades away. So therefore, it's discontent. It's discontented. If you've ever been really excited and you fell or you've ever been really excited and said something that you felt like you wish you wouldn't have said or you've ever been really excited and you made a mistake in the decisions that you were making, this is because the mind was shaken up by that excited mental state. Or if you've ever been really happy and excited to only crash later and experience this sadness and this despair, this displeasure, that's because those pleasant feelings were temporary and they were dissatisfying. The mind was chasing those pleasant feelings. It got them and it felt wonderful for a period of time, but it was temporary. It was impermanent. And then once they faded away, the mind was right back where it started from. These painful feelings are sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, feelings like this. These are all very painful in others to experience in the mind. And it's based on some condition. There's some condition that's causing the mind to be 
discontent with these painful feelings, which is what we'll talk about as part of the Four Noble Truths. So painful feelings are these real painful feelings like despair and misery, right? Then there's neither painful nor pleasant. I put boredom and loneliness in here along with some others. Some people tell me that boredom and loneliness is really painful for them. And if it is, okay, you can put that in painful feelings. That's completely fine. You can move these feelings around. But nonetheless, there are these three feelings, pleasant, painful, and neither painful nor pleasant. Maybe a better explanation of neither painful nor pleasant is something like shyness. It's not real pleasant. It's not painful. It's kind of neither painful nor pleasant or uncomfortable. Some people, if they're sitting on a public bus and someone that you don't know comes and sits really close to you where maybe your body is touching their body, you might describe that it's, it's not pleasant for you. It's not painful for you. It's neither painful nor pleasant. So that uncomfortableness, that displeasure, that unsatisfaction or dissatisfaction, that's the part that is neither painful nor pleasant. So these three feelings are what we call discontentedness, okay? The way that you confirm whether this is true or not is you think about the different feelings that you experience in the mind, right? This is you now reflecting. Now that you've learned what the universal truth of discontentedness is, you now start reflecting on it. And you say, okay, Mr. Gautama Buddha, you say there's pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. You start evaluating the mind. You start looking over your past and the various feelings that you've experienced in this life. Are there any feelings that you experience that don't fit into one of these three categories? And you start looking and you start analyzing. You start trying to reflect on this. And if you can find a feeling that doesn't fit into one of these three, then you've disproven the Buddha. But the way that he teaches here of saying a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and neither painful nor pleasant, he really captures the full spectrum of feelings that the mind experiences. So this is discontentedness. This is when the mind is shaken up. It's unsteady, it's uncalm. When it's happy, excited, elated, thrilled, the mind is shaken up, it's unsteady, it's uncalm. The same thing with sadness, anger, frustration, and others. Or when the mind is experiencing shyness or displeasure or dissatisfaction, it's not steady, it's shaken up. And this is discontentedness. Now, what you'll oftentimes hear in Buddhist communities is this word dukkha will get translated as suffering. But I don't translate it that way because this feeling of painful feelings, that describes suffering. If I was going to say at times when I used to be angry, I was suffering for sure. Or when I felt guilt or shame or fear or stress or anxiety, yeah, I would say I was suffering for sure. But when I was experiencing shyness, I wouldn't say I was suffering. Or when I was excited, right? Or if I was thrilled or euphoric or having this exhilaration, I wouldn't say I was suffering when I was experiencing pleasant feelings. So if we use this word suffering, it only describes one third of what the Buddha was talking about, which is painful feelings. So that means we're missing two thirds. We're missing 66% of the wisdom of the Buddha. So if we use this word suffering going forward in our life, 
that has been used predominantly in Buddhist communities, then we're missing 66% of the wisdom of what the Buddha was talking about. We're only understanding 33% because ultimately what we're going to get to is we're going to be able to eliminate these conditioned feelings. But if we're only eliminating 33% of them, that means we're still 66% discontent. So in order to deeply understand this universal truth of discontentedness where the Buddha talked about dukkha, we need to understand 100% of it because that's what's causing the mind to be shaken up is this discontentedness. If we only eliminate 33% of the mind that's being shaken up, then we're still 66% shaken up. So by using this word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness, we're describing the feelings and the mental state that we experience when there's these conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So be sure that you learn that deeply, you reflect on it, and then you practice and start observing these discontent feelings coming into the mind and how the mind gets shaken up. Now the third universal truth, it's called the universal truth of non-self. This is one that takes a lot to really wrap the mind around. I explain it as part of the three universal truths, but it's usually not until later that practitioners and students start to really deeply understand it in a way that they can really practice it and see the truth in it. So if you don't understand it 100% right now when I share it with you, don't worry because you're probably going to need to hear this 10, 20, 30 times and have maybe even private conversations, read what I write in the book about it, and these other things in order to really deeply understand this universal truth of non-self. What the Buddha is sharing in this third universal truth is that there is no permanent self. The self is the self-image and the self-identity. There's this certain appearance that the unenlightened mind has as a certain self-image that it wants to project in the world, right? We want to wear certain clothes. We want to have our hairstyle a certain way. We want to have certain jewelry, certain makeup, a certain appearance. And we're trying to project this self-image into the world. And we think that this physical body is who we are as a person. And because the mind is holding on to this self-image, then the mind can get easily shaken up if somebody says, oh, you look so ugly today, right? We can maybe get these painful feelings or are you sure you're going to wear that shirt? That doesn't really quite look right on you. And then the mind can experience these painful feelings, this anger or frustration that somebody says this about you. You can get offended, right? Or if someone's like, oh my goodness, you look so handsome or you look so beautiful today, then there's these pleasant feelings that arise because the mind's holding on to this self-image, thinking that this physical body is you. And the Buddha is saying, no, that's not you. That's not who you are. That's just the physical body. But that's not you because there is no you there. There is no self. It's just a physical body. And then the other part of this understanding of the universal truth of non-self is the self-identity. That there's a certain identity in the mind where the mind has certain criteria. You might see yourself as a mom or a dad or a grandmother or a grandfather, or you might see yourself as Asian or Caucasian or Egyptian or South American or African-American or these other different types of 
people and we might identify with certain qualities of who we are in the mind and who we see ourselves as being. And the Buddha is saying none of that stuff is you. That self-identity that you're walking around with in the mind, the Buddha says that's not who you are. That's just the perceptions or that's the delusion, that's the ignorance that the mind has thinking that this self-identity in the mind is who you are. So if you identify with being a mom or a dad or a Caucasian or an Egyptian or an African-American or an Asian person, and then you start hearing people say negative things about these different qualities that you identify with, now the mind's going to get angry. It's going to get shaken up because you see yourself as an Asian person or you see yourself as an African-American or an Egyptian or or an American. You might have certain identities in your mind that you identify with. And as soon as you hear somebody say something negative, the mind's going to experience these painful feelings. Or if you hear something positive, you'll experience these pleasant feelings because of this self-identity that the mind is walking around with, holding on to and carrying around, thinking that that's the permanent self. And the Buddha says, no, that's not who you are as a person. Right. So as long as we walk around with this self-identity and this self-image, the mind can easily be shaken up when you hear something that identifies with your self-identity or that addresses your certain physical appearance, your self-image. The mind can easily be shaken up. So the Buddha says this universal truth of non-self is there is no self. There is no permanent self. You can't identify one thing and say that's who you are. You can't point at the physical body and say, this is David, because actually I'm just pointing at a shirt. And then if I take off the shirt and I point and I say, this is David. No, that's just skin. So we get rid of the skin and we say, this is David. No, that's just bones and muscle tissue and organs and fluid. That's not David. There is no David here. This is just a label that was given to me at birth in order to make it easy for people to refer to this being that we call David. This is why the squirrels out in the forest, they don't have names, right? The, the bears in the forest don't have names. The deer in the forest don't have names because they're not walking around wanting to refer to each other. But us in the human realm, we need to have this label of Donnie and Chrissy and Jan and Bossom and Manal and Nick. We need these labels in order to make it easy to refer to each other. But the problem is, is that the unenlightened mind starts assigning a certain self-image and a certain self-identity to these labels and now we start holding on to this self-image and self-identity and we cause ourselves this discontentedness whenever we hear either agreeable comments or we hear disagreeable comments. We cause ourselves this discontentedness. The way that you can understand this is truth, even at this early stage, that you can understand that there is no self, that there is no permanent self called Dani or Jan, or Nick, or Manal, the way that you can understand that is you can think about your self-image over the course of your life. When you were a child, you looked at yourself in a certain way and with a certain personality. And then as you aged in your teenage years, you looked at yourself in a slightly different way with a different personality. And now maybe in your adult years, you look at yourself in a different way. 
and your personality and your character has been constantly changing. Your self-image has been constantly changing. Your self-identity and how you look at yourself has been constantly changing over time. That's how you know there is no permanent self. Because if there was a permanent self, when you were a toddler or a adolescent or a teenager, you would have a certain personality, you would have a certain character, and it would stay the same permanently. But it, it didn't. It's been constantly changing because there is no self. This concept of a permanent self that the mind holds on to is just causing it to be shaken up. So as part of this path to enlightenment, you realize non-self. And this takes a lot of work, but this is part of the universal truth. So I explain it to you here just as an introduction. And when we get into chapter 16, we're going to talk more deeply about this universal truth and really unravel it more for you. But let me just pause here and see if you guys have any questions on the three universal truths, because these are really building blocks to talk about the four noble truths. So I'd like to be sure any questions you guys have, you have a chance to ask those and get answers to them. So if you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, put those in the comment section. Bassam, Manal, Nick will help you guys to be sure they get asked during the class. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Hello, teacher. As for the third universal truth, which is uh, non-self, uh, when you're saying self, are you referring to character or personality? Or these are two different things? I'm really talking about the self-image and self-identity. The character and the personality is separate from the self, but there's kind of a little bit of self contained in there. So our self image and our self identity, our personality and our character might take on certain qualities because of our holding on to the self image and self identity, but they are separate. They're separate, but yet connected. Well, so experiencing shyness is related to the delusion of self. The shyness is related to craving, desire, attachment, which we're going to talk about next. Well, we have a question on uh, uh, Zoom. So when other people tell us what they perceive about us, how might we react? They label us, but we understand that is not ourselves. Right. So what you have to understand is when somebody says something negatively about you, this is just their opinions this is their thoughts this is their lack of moral conduct if people are talking disparagingly to you you have to train your mind to not react don't react because that's only going to cause you further problems if you're reacting that means the mind is unskillful you can respond but in most cases if someone's talking negative it doesn't even make sense to respond to that because if somebody's argumentative and disparaging, why would you even talk to somebody like that? Just let it go and move on. So the goal of this path is not to react, but to gain wisdom, have discipline of the mind, be able to restrain the mind and function with skillful conduct so that when you do hear these different things that are happening in the world, that the mind isn't shaken up by it. And you can respond and a response might be, that you say nothing 
or you might walk away. This is a response. And you can remain peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, knowing that this person who's talking negatively about this physical body, you don't have to allow it to shake up the mind. But as long as there's a self there, the mind is going to be shaken up because it's holding on to this self. Nick has his hand raised. Let's go to him. Hello, teacher. Christina has a question. She would like to know if there's no self, what gets carried over um, when when people die in, in regards to future lives, past lives, etc. Sure. So when one being dies and another one is ultimately reborn, the only thing that moves from one being to the next is craving. Craving moves from one being to the next and residual memories. There isn't this soul or entity. The Buddha left that as an undeclared teaching. He didn't say there is a soul, but he didn't say there isn't a soul either. So there's not this permanent entity that goes from one being to the next. They're completely different beings. So being A and being B are two completely separate beings. You can think of them as like cardboard boxes. The mind is like a cardboard box. When being A dies, the cravings and residual memories move into being B. And now being B has a completely new physical form, if it's a human or animal, completely new physical form, completely new mind, but it's almost like there's been this downloading of craving and residual memories that have moved from one mind to the next. That's the only thing that moves from one mind to the next. These two beings are completely unique and different beings from one existence to the next. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Let's go to Manel for Facebook questions. Yes, uh, we have a question from Tin. Can I relate my craving to outside cause but not me? Mm, no, that's not accurate. We're going to talk about craving next. I'll explain to you what it is, but what you just described isn't how I would describe craving. Okay, she continues. The external effects on my feelings for a while when my craving for inner peace and calmness happen. At that time, I have to stop my meditation or peace to deal with those external conditions. Should I move to somewhere else or not talking to those annoying pe persons? Or We're should I stay and talk through the problems with them? Especially my mom. She kept complaining of tiny things when my baby made a mess. Should I talk to her about it or should I take bright actions to clean it up? Or should I move out of the house? I think I want to see my parents close to me as I cherish the family value, but she's never happy with it. The situation I feel is so crazy. Yeah, I'm sure you're having a lot of struggles in your life because your mind isn't awakened to these natural laws. So you're never going to find that I will give you an exact solution of telling you exactly what to do or not to do in your life because you've got to make those decisions on your own. What I'm going to be able to do for you is help you understand these natural laws and why your mind is functioning the way it is which is thus going to explain to you why other people's minds around you are functioning the way that their mind is functioning. And then with this wisdom, you will sort out your life and figure out what to do in any given situation. So my role isn't to tell you 
whether you should move out or you should stay or any of these other things. My role is to help you understand these natural laws and then as you learn them more and more, you will come up with solutions because there's more than one solution and you're the only one that knows all the different variables and all the different challenges that you're experiencing. So you're the best person to be able to make decisions in your life, but you can't really make wise decisions if you don't have wisdom. So my goal is to share the wisdom with you and then you can make your own decisions as you go forward in life. But let's talk about why the mind is experiencing these things. I will share with you in the next part of our class today why your mind is experiencing the things that it's experiencing. We have another question from Adrian. So can the natural laws of existence be considered an absolute? Depending on how you define the word absolute, I would say yes. Because when you understand the natural laws of existence, they are true now. They were true when, during the lifetime of the Buddha, and they will be true thousands and thousands of years from now. These natural laws don't change. This is why the teachings of the Buddha are timeless. What he taught 2,500 years ago is exactly applicable to today because the natural laws haven't changed. They're timeless. They're permanent. They don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. So once you learn these natural laws, this is why the enlightened mental state is permanent, or one of the reasons why it's permanent. Because once you understand these natural laws, it doesn't change. Like gravity hasn't changed all of a sudden, right? It just stays. We just have gravity, and we know we have gravity. There's an equation that we can write out and say this is the equation of gravity, this is the physics involved. It's the same thing with the natural laws of existence, that they're the same during the lifetime of the Buddha that they are now, and they'll be this way long into uh, the future, and they won't change. So if you think of that as an absolute, then yes, they are absolute. Maria asks, what about passion? Passion for animals from childhood to adulthood still have the love to save the animals and rescue. Does this make sense? It's personality question mark, character, question mark. Passion is actually part of craving, desire, attachment, which we're going to talk about next. Love that you're describing is love. There's love in there, but that's not actually love. Passion is not love. We're going to be talking in chapter 15 about true love and helping you understand what true love is. That's coming up in three weeks because the way the unenlightened mind thinks of love is actually not love. It's actually craving, desire, attachment. This is why love hurts for an unenlightened mind. They think love hurts, but it's not actually the love that's hurting. It's actually craving, desire, attachment that's causing the pain. Love actually doesn't cause pain. You're going to see that when we talk today that it's craving, desire, attachment that causes these painful feelings, not love. So passion and what you're describing as love is not actually really love. It's actually craving, desire, attachment that's causing those things. Those are all the questions from Facebook. All right. Anything else from you, Bossom? Yes, teacher. I'm seeing that a pleasant feelings is included in discontentedness. Does this mean that a practitioner to attain enlightenment should live a miserable life? Absolutely not. When you 
attain enlightenment, the mind is going to be liberated from these strong feelings. It's no longer going to be basing its inner feelings on some condition. So an enlightened mind is what we call unconditioned. An unenlightened mind is conditioned. I get a new pair of shoes. I'm happy. I get a new job. I'm happy. But now I'm at the job for six months. I don't like it anymore. Now I'm sad because I, I got all these pleasant feelings from this new pair of shoes and this new job. And then that faded away because they were impermanent because I based my inner feelings on this condition of new shoes and new job. And that's why these pleasant feelings are temporary because they're conditioned feelings. They're based on some condition. And then that's why after the pleasant feelings, there's going to be these painful feelings and these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So when we remove this pollution that we're going to be talking about in the Four Noble Truths, when we remove this pollution of basing our inner feelings on some condition, now the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy whether you have a new pair of shoes or you have an old pair of shoes, if you have a new job or an old job, if you live in a certain type of house or another type of house, or if you have old clothes or new clothes, the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy because it's not basing its inner feelings on the condition of having a new pair of shoes or the condition of having a new job. Instead, an enlightened mind doesn't base its inner feelings on these conditions around us. And what the unenlightened mind is used to is chasing after these pleasant feelings and wanting the objects of its affection in order to create these pleasant feelings. But when you stop chasing after those feelings and you realize that you can actually be content without chasing these objects of your affection, then when you train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in that life of just fulfilling your needs, then you can be joyful when you wake up all day long. And when you go to sleep, you can be joyful all the time, but it's not based on any condition. You're just joyful because you're joyful. If the sun's out, you're joyful. If it's raining out, you're still joyful. Instead of allowing the rain or the sun to crash your happiness, instead an enlightened mind can be joyful no matter what's happening around us. Well, uh, it seems that Manal has a question. Let's go to her. Yes, Teacher David, just something that um, came to the mind. Is any part of self-identity um, holding on to self-identity um, beneficial for oneself in practice? No, there's no part of self-identity holding on that's going to be beneficial. Because if you identify with certain characteristics or certain qualities, as soon as you hear something along those lines, it's going to shake up the mind. If you hear something agreeable, you're going to have these pleasant feelings. Or if you hear something disagreeable, you're going to have painful feelings. So you've got to let that go, not identifying with those things. You're still a person. There's still this human being that's here. There's still this physical body. Like, for example, I know that I have skin that is a little bit whiter than some people, but it's also darker than some people as well. And someone might say that you're a Caucasian. Okay, that's the label that people give to me. But in this mind, I just see myself as a human being. 
This is just a human being sitting here. This isn't a Caucasian American with blonde hair and blue eyes that lives in Thailand, you know, yada, 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 right on down the line. It's just a human being that's having a human experience. As soon as I, I allow the mind to identify with any of those things, if I identify with being a U.S. citizen, for example, and I am an American, then as soon as somebody says something agreeable about America, then the mind gets all these pleasant feelings. Or if somebody says something disagreeable about America, then the mind gets angry or frustrated. Whereas if you just realize like, okay, this physical body was born in America and other people consider me American, but this mind doesn't identify with those kind of things because it's just a trap that you walk yourself into where you're now setting yourself up for failure. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So let's talk about craving desire attachment because this is a teaching that you need to understand in order to understand the Four Noble Truths. Just like the three universal truths are needed in order to understand the Four Noble Truths, this teaching is needed also. There's craving desire attachment also you might describe them as expectations or wants or holding or grasping or clinging what craving desire attachment is is a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness this is where the mind is pulling in the direction of the objects of its affection. It's wanting certain things. It's expecting certain things. It wants to hold on. It's longing. It's yearning for something. This is what a craving desire attachment is. Where sometimes people get confused is they think the object itself is the craving desire attachment. So like a car. Some people think that the car is the craving desire attachment. It's not the car. That's just the physical object. It's the way that the mind is longing for it and wanting the car or the mind is holding on to the car so that when you see a scratch on the car, then the mind doesn't like that. Right. So it's the longing. It's the mental longing. It's not the actual object itself. So when we talk about the Four Noble Truths, it's important to understand that everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. That's what the unenlightened mind is going to experience is this discontentedness. Because the mind is unenlightened, it's going to experience these conditioned pleasant feelings. It's going to experience these conditioned painful feelings. And it's going to experience these conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. It's going to get excited when you see your best friend or your mom comes to visit you or you have a new pair of shoes or a new job or you get uh, extra money or extra pay if you have craving desire attachment to these things the mind's going to experience these pleasant feelings arise or when you lack certain things that the mind wants then you're going to experience these painful feelings or you're sometimes going to experience these neither painful nor pleasant feelings you haven't done anything wrong. You're not a bad person. You're not a horrible person. It's just the untrained, undisciplined mind that it's untrained. So it's latching on. It's yearning. It's longing for these things. And that's why the mind keeps getting shaken up because it's not well trained. 
And if the mind is unenlightened, it will experience these painful feelings, these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, and these pleasant feelings are going to arise in the mind. The second noble truth is that discontentedness is caused by our own craving, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. We're going to talk about this a few times, and I'm going to describe it to different levels of depth to help you understand it and even give you some examples. Discontentedness is caused by our own mental longing with a strong eagerness because the mind wants everything to be permanent. The mind is holding on, wanting things to be permanent when everything is impermanent. So that boyfriend or girlfriend that you had that you broke up and then you were angry or you were sad or you felt lonely afterwards, that's because you were holding on. That's because the mind was craving permanence. It wanted this relationship to be permanent. And then when you guys separated, that's when the discontentedness came into the mind. Or you might have been discontent all the way through the relationship for different reasons. If you've had a car and you saw a scratch on the car and your mind became angry or frustrated, that's because the mind's craving permanence. It wants this car to look this way permanently. Or if you got a new car or you got a new pair of shoes or you got a new jewelry or you got a new job and you experience this happiness, this excitement, this thrill, that's because the mind had a craving, a yearning, a desire. It was attached to these things. And when it fulfilled the objects of its affection, it experienced these pleasant feelings. And then when those things faded, then the mind experiences these painful feelings or these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So the mind is essentially causing its own discontentedness. The mind is causing the pleasant feelings, the painful feelings, and the feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant because of its own cravings, its own desire, this expectations, this wants, this mental longing, this yearning, the mind is holding on. And the more that the mind does this, it's going to just keep causing itself discontentedness. So this second noble truth is that discontentedness is caused by our own craving desire attachments because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything is impermanent. The same reason why people cry at a funeral is the same reason why people cry at weddings. When people die, the mind grieves and it cries. The person is upset and grieving because the mind is craving permanence. It's trying to hold on to this person permanently. The mind isn't awakened to the wisdom of impermanence. The same thing at weddings. When your child is marrying and leaving the home, the mind is trying to hold on to this child permanently and it doesn't want to let go. This is the reason why people cry and are upset and grieve at funerals. And it's the same thing that happens at weddings too. So the mind is expecting permanence. It's craving permanence. Another way to say that is the mind does not like impermanence. 
It does not like impermanence because it doesn't understand change. It doesn't understand impermanence. It doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. So when you understand the wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence and all of these things are impermanent, then you understand the third noble truth, which is the elimination of discontentedness is possible by eliminating craving, desire, attachment. When you train the mind to no longer have this longing with a strong eagerness, wanting the objects of its affection and holding on tightly, then when you train the mind that way to let go, then it won't experience these conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. It won't experience discontentedness when it's able to let go. So when your children get married and you're like, okay, well, that's the sign of a good parent that you've raised them to the point where they now have wisdom. They're growing up. They've got a job and they're going off and starting their own family. That's part of life and that's impermanence. They can't stay with you permanently. That's part of life. That's the universal truth of impermanence. Or when someone dies, this is impermanence because the physical body is impermanent. The only reason why people die is because they were born. Because they were born, they have to die. There's no other way around that. It's a requirement that if something arises, it's going to change and then it's going to fade away. So when there's birth, there's going to be change and then we're going to fade away. We're all going to die at some point. So rather than allowing the mind to hold on, craving that car to look permanently beautiful and shiny, when we see that scratch, we're like, ah, that makes sense because of impermanence. Or when our kids come home with good grades, rather than allowing the mind to get so excited about that, because then they come home with a bad grade and now the mind's angry, right? So if we allow the mind to get these pleasant feelings based on the condition of good grades, then when they come home with bad grades, that same condition is no longer there because it's impermanent. They're not permanently going to get good grades. So therefore, when this condition is changed, now that's why the mind moves into painful feelings. Or if you allow the mind to get these pleasant feelings because you got a new pair of shoes, then when those shoes get old, the mind's going to experience painful feelings or they get stolen or they get really dirty or cut up or something like that. The mind's going to experience these painful feelings because you're conditioning your pleasant feelings on the new shoes. So when the shoes aren't new anymore, that condition has changed. Now you're going to experience painful feelings. So this is the third noble truth that you need to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment where the mind is basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. And then the fourth noble truth is the path to eliminating discontentedness is the eightfold path. This is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. These are eight steps that when you learn them and you practice them, it trains the mind to no longer experience this discontentedness. So in terms of the title for this chapter is craving is the problem. This is described in the second noble truth that craving is the cause of all discontentedness. The solution at a high level 
is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. But we're going to go into it in more detail today than that. But the high level solution is we need to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment from the mind where it has this yearning, this longing, this strong eagerness to hold on to things permanently. Well, how do you do that? Well, you do it through the Eightfold Path, but there's specific steps that are part of the Eightfold Path that we use in order to train the mind to no longer have this craving, desire, attachment. That's the solution that we're going to get into today. But let me pause and see what questions you guys have before we move on. Well, as for the first noble truth, does it mean that even having power, authority, money, beauty, health, all of these are together, are not able to eliminate discontentedness from the mind? No, this is the delusion. This is the ignorance that we've been living with throughout our whole life. We've been taught and we believe that wealth, for some people, that wealth is going to lead to permanent happiness or that material objects are going to lead to permanent happiness or a certain job title or a certain power or a certain position in society, that that's going to lead to happiness. So the mind chases after wealth. This is one of the reasons why the mind is selfish and it holds on to money is that it thinks that if it holds on to this money or we hold on to these material objects that this is going to lead to happiness and we hold it really tight and we chase after all of this wealth thinking that that's what's going to lead to permanent happiness but it doesn't because as soon as you get a hundred thousand dollars in your bank account then you want five hundred thousand and then you get five hundred thousand you want a million and then you get a million you want five million you're never content with the amount of money that's in your bank account and when the bank account goes up and down your emotions and your feelings go up and down too or if you're holding on to a material object like a car and you've worked really hard for this car well when someone scratches it or it gets into an accident then the mind is shaken up by that because it thinks that this car is going to create the permanent happiness in the mind so all of these things like wealth a certain position in society certain material objects that's not what leads to permanent contentedness and permanent peacefulness money can kind of make things a little bit easier for you in your life in terms of acquiring the needs in your life like food and water, clothing, shelter, medical supplies, things like this. But that's not what's going to lead to permanent happiness. And this is the delusion, the ignorance that the mind is living with. And this is why a lot of people, including myself at one time, chased after money thinking that that was the source of happiness. But once you acquire a certain amount of money, that's when you realize that your mind is still just as discontent as it was before, maybe even more discontent. This is why a prince destined to become a king gave up the royal riches and stepped down to be a Buddha. And he didn't know he was going to be a Buddha at the time, but he left the royal palace because his mind was discontent. He had all the money and all the wealth that you can imagine as a prince destined to become a king. But yet he left all of that in order to find peacefulness. It doesn't mean you can't have money and be enlightened because you can. But it's all about how the mind relates to this money 
if it's craving, desiring, attaching, if it has this yearning, this mental longing, this selfishness to hold on to these things, that's going to cause discontentedness. And what you realize as part of this path is none of these material objects in the world is going to create lasting inner fulfillment and lasting satisfaction. It's only when you train the mind and you create mental discipline in the mind that you're going to be able to get to that permanent lasting satisfaction, that permanent mental state of enlightenment by eliminating all the pollution of mind. That's the only thing that's going to allow you to get to this permanent peacefulness. Well, uh, let's go to Nick for Facebook questions. Yes. Adrian has a question. She writes, I remember seeing a talk by the Dalai Lama where he shares that there is a certain level of acceptance of ego. Ego helps us get things done. It's when we become attached to it that the problem starts. Can you explain this? I can't explain the Dalai Lama's words because he's the one who spoke those and he would need to be able to speak on what he meant by those things and if that's even an accurate representation of what he said. But in terms of the Buddhist teachings and what leads to enlightenment based on the original teachings of the Buddha is that ego is not going to be able to exist in an enlightened mind. Because what ego is, is it's this arrogance, this pride, this measuring and comparing, this puffing up. This isn't going to lead to enlightenment. The mind is just going to continue to have arrogance and pride. We're going to be talking about this in chapter 16. So let's wait for four weeks that we're going to be talking about dissolving the ego. The ego actually needs to be completely eliminated and dissolved in order to get to enlightenment. You can't retain the ego and still get to enlightenment. There's a couple more questions, teacher. Jacqueline writes, by understanding and acknowledging the universal truth of impermanence does not extinguish the feeling but by understanding the feeling is understood and isn't permanent. Does that make sense? I'm not 100% sure what you're sharing there, except for maybe what you're sharing is that learning the universal truth of impermanence is one thing, but soaking it into the mind and training the mind not to crave permanence is a completely different thing. Because you can learn the universal truth of impermanence and intellectually get it, but then to train the mind to not have craving for permanence is a whole nother thing. And it takes a long time to be able to train the mind to do that. And in order to train the mind to be able to do that, you have to first intellectually understand the universal truth of impermanence and these other natural laws of existence. And as you do, then that makes implementing the solutions more easy. T has a question. She writes, is the mission of making this world a better place and grateful for now and here moment also a wrong view? Yeah. I mean, craving for positive effects on others. Yeah. So any kind of craving, desire, attachment is going to cause the mind to be discontent. So if you're craving for the world to be a certain way, that's going to cause the mind to be discontent. Your goal in this life is not to change the world because you can't change the world. You can't change these natural laws. These natural laws of existence have been this way for eons and you can't change them. 
All you can do is focus on training your own mind and improve the condition of your own mind. And then through your own mind improving, you'll experience more peacefulness. But if you take on this burden of changing the world, my goodness, you're going to just be discontent over and over and over and over again. You've got to let go of wanting the world to be a certain way and just understand that it's functioning through these natural laws. And while there's many unenlightened beings in the world and there's lots of suffering, if we'd like to use that word, there's lots of misery, there's lots of grief. There's also lots of pleasure in the world too. There's lots of these things that are in the world that are happening, but you don't have any control over that. And you don't have any control over changing that. You only have one being that you can change and that's your own being. And that's hard enough. That's challenging enough. So don't fall into the trap or the delusion or the ignorance of thinking you need to go out and change the world because that's not what you need to do and you won't be successful in that. All you can do is work on your own mind and improve that. And that's going to be a big enough project for you. No more questions, teacher. All right. So I'll go ahead and move on to the next part of what I was going to share with you, which is just a image of the Eightfold Path. This is something that we've been talking about at different times in this program, helping you see the eight steps that you need to learn. And as you gradually learn this path, this is how the mind is going to eliminate discontentedness. We're going to talk about certain steps of this today, and then you can see the various categories of wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. But specifically, what this chapter brings to your attention is the potential cravings that the mind can have. There's many different cravings in the world. There's different examples that I'm sharing with you in this next table. There's different things that the mind can actually be craving. These particular cravings, it's not the automobile itself that is the craving. Like I said, the automobile is just an object. It's just an automobile. But some people think that because ordained practitioners don't own automobiles, they don't have cars, they think in order to get to enlightenment, it's the automobile that is the attachment and you've got to get rid of your automobile. But this actually isn't true. What you need to get rid of and what you need to eliminate is the mental longing for it. It's the mental longing for the automobile that is causing the discontentedness. It's not the automobile itself because the automobile itself is just metal and fluids and cloth and glass and different things like this. That itself isn't causing the mind to be discontent. So if you eliminate the automobile and you didn't have an automobile, your mind wouldn't become discontent based on the automobile but your mind might be discontent when a piece of clothing gets ripped and torn. So it's not the clothing or the automobile that is the attachment. It's not the jewelry or the children or these other things that you see in this chapter that I talk about. Those things themselves, the objects, are not the craving, desire, attachment. It's the mental longing for these things. So if someone had a craving, desire, attachment for automobiles, they would have this 
yearning, this longing, wanting these automobiles, more and more and more and more and more of them. And they would condition their feelings based on these automobiles. And there's potential harm that can come from this, that if a mind has a lot of craving to purchase multiple, 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 multiple automobiles, and then it's trying to keep them in pristine condition. And if one little scratch is on one of these automobiles, then the mind gets angered, then the person can have, of course, discontentedness, but they can also have this excessive work. There might be ego. There might be a lack of time with people that are close to you because the mind is chasing after the objects of its affection, which is an automobile in this example. Or if somebody has a craving, desire, attachment for happiness, for example, and the mind's just craving, 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 yearning, longing for this permanent happiness and then the mind realizes that this happiness is impermanent the more it chases happiness the more sad the mind becomes and one of the potential harmful effects is is people can commit suicide because the impression that they're left with is that the mind should be permanently happy and when the person's chasing after this permanent happiness they might get involved in substance abuse or other things and they're just chasing this permanent happiness through these material objects and they can't ever get to permanent happiness because they keep conditioning their inner feelings on some impermanent condition. And when the mind gets sad enough, they might actually commit suicide. So if we chase after happiness, if we have this yearning, this longing, this craving, desire, attachment, this expectation, this wanting of happiness, it can lead to all sorts of problems. One of those problems is something like suicide. Or if you have a certain job title that you're wanting, you're desiring, you're craving to have a certain job and you chase after that job, the job itself isn't the craving, desire, attachment because you're going to need to sustain your life in some way. It's the mental longing and a strong eagerness for the job that is causing the mind to be discontent or something like a life partner. If you don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or you don't have a husband or a wife or a life partner, but you're yearning for one, you really want one really badly. It's not the life partner itself that is causing the discontentedness. It's the mind yearning for it and longing for it. Because there were times in the past where you did have a boyfriend or girlfriend and the mind was still discontent when you had the boyfriend or girlfriend. And then when you don't have the boyfriend or girlfriend, your mind's discontent there too. So there you can see that it's not the life partner that is causing the mind to be discontent. Because when you have a life partner, the mind's discontent. When you don't have a life partner, the mind is discontent. It's the craving, desire, attachment to have the life partner that is causing the discontent. And then when you have your life partner or a boyfriend or girlfriend, you want them to be a certain way. And when they're not meeting your expectations, that craving, desire, attachment is not being fulfilled. Now the mind is being discontent. So this is how these certain cravings, it's not the object itself that is the craving. So you can have a life partner, you can have a job, you can have a automobile or multiple automobiles, you can have children and clothing and jewelry and even fame and all of these other things. 
but it's when the mind is yearning and longing for these things. That's the real problem. I put some other examples in this chapter too, that if the mind is yearning for perfection or longing for perfection, and you just think that everything in your life should be perfect, you should have this perfect little house, everything in the house should look perfect, your children should be perfect, you should be perfect. If you're craving and yearning and longing for these things, then you're gonna experience things like guilt or obsessiveness or try to control the things around you. Feelings of being worthless and insignificant, right? You're gonna feel these kind of experiences because the mind is discontent. It's longing and yearning for this perfection and when you realize you don't have that, that's where the mind experiences discontentedness. There's all these others in here as well. Things like substance abuse. This is something that, of course, everyone needs to eliminate. Something like a car or something like that. You can still have those things in your life. You just have to remove the longing for it. But if somebody is longing and yearning and they're actually abusing certain substances, this is something that they have to completely eliminate from their life because it's not going to lead to a purified mind, a purification of the mind. So there's certain things like substances that we know are going to pollute the mind and people can have craving, desire, attachments for these things or something like wealth. You might be a wealthy person. You might have certain wealth. You might have a certain amount of currency or real estate or gold or other items that are worth a certain amount of money and you might have acquired a certain amount of wealth. You don't need to eliminate your wealth in order to attain enlightenment. What you need to eliminate is the mental longing for it, wanting it and holding on to it so tightly, having these selfish desires to hold on to the wealth. That's what's actually going to cause the mind to be discontent because the longer you hold on to the wealth, and thinking that if your bank account has $3,000, you're okay. Or if it has $10,000, you feel emboldened and arrogant. Or if you have $50,000 in your bank account, you have all these pleasant feelings. But then what happens when somebody in your family gets sick and now you have to spend your money and now you're back down to $1,000 or $500. If you put your self-image and your self-identity into how much money is in your bank account and you're craving for your bank account to have a certain balance, when it's up to a certain level, you're going to feel pleasant feelings. And when it's down to a certain level, you're going to feel painful feelings. So you don't need to eliminate the wealth. You need to eliminate the craving and desire for the wealth in training the mind to not have this yearning and this longing. When I was in the professional world and I made a certain salary coming out of college, I thought I was rich and I was making a certain amount of money. But then once you get accustomed to that amount of money, the mind wants more. And then you get a raise and you get a little bit more money. And then you feel real pleasurable and you feel great. And then you want more and you want more and you want more, right? That's the craving, desire, attachment constantly chasing after the objects of its affection, it's never satisfied. If there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, it's like this unquenchable thirst where the mind is just thirsty and it keeps wanting more and more and more and more. And it's not just wealth, it's power, it's sex, it's drugs, it's automobiles, it's 
fame, it's other things that are part of this chapter. It's not the objects themselves that are the problem. It's how the mind is longing and yearning for it. That is the problem that the mind is encountering. And after this, we'll talk about the solutions. So let me see what questions you guys have on this part so far. Hey, Kaz, is Ham It's good to have Yes, teacher, we have a question here. Uh, on the previous slide, we saw uh, happiness and uh, potential outcome of that cravings, uh, you know, worst case scenario of suicide. Um, but how would you guide a child? Um, I guess you could say the, the craving is boredom, or I mean, uh, not to be bored. Someone that's bored and then you give them something to do, and then uh, when there's nothing to do for a moment, they go, they become sad again. I'm trying to word that question uh, correctly. Uh, how would you guide a, chi a child in that, that scenario? So there's no harm in having an interest or a goal or an objective to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and consent mind with joy. There's no harm in having a goal, an objective, or an interest. It's when the mind craves it and it wants it. It wants this happiness, right? And that's what's going to lead to the discontentedness is that yearning, that mental longing. So the reason why the boredom is coming into a child's mind is because they want to be involved in video games or they want to be watching TV or they want to be playing with their friends. They have certain wants. They're not content with where they're at. So you can't give them any one particular thing that's going to eliminate their boredom because if they're bored and then they play a board game, for example, they'll be happy while they're playing the board game but as soon as that board game is over then they're discontent again right or if they're drawing a picture then they might be content while they're drawing the picture but then as soon as they're done with the picture they're craving the next thing or if you go to jujitsu class there might be peaceful and content while they're in the jujitsu class, but then when it's over, maybe now they're bored, right? Because it's the craving desire attachment. So the only way to get to permanent peacefulness or permanent joy is to train the mind to no longer base its inner feelings on some condition. And that's not going to happen overnight. It's not just one thing that you can give a child to eliminate the boredom. The only thing that's going to eliminate the boredom is eliminate all craving desire attachments, every single craving desire attachment, and they have to do that work themselves through learning these teachings and gradually training the mind. So it might take three years, five years, six years to gradually get to the point where they're able to eliminate their boredom more and more and more. So you can't just give one particular guidance and say, this is going to eliminate the boredom because it's a whole path a whole comprehensive life practice that they need to implement in order to remove the pollution of craving desire attachment. That's what's causing the boredom is that they're craving to be with friends. They're craving to be at jujitsu. They're craving to be at school. They're craving to get a new toy. They're craving to be here and they're craving to be there. That's what's causing the mind to be discontent and bored because it's not content with where it's at. It always wants to be somewhere else. Well, uh, 
One may think that if there is no craving in the mind, so what would be the goal or motivation for life? The goal or motivation of life is to get to enlightenment because when you eliminate all this pollution of the mind, then the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And you can do anything in the world that you would like to do without any anger, without any sadness, without being shaken up all the time. So instead of chasing the objects of your affection, you will end up fulfilling the needs in life. Instead of chasing your wants, you will fulfill your needs and you will still spend time with family. You'll still go on holidays. You'll still go to work. You'll still enjoy personal and professional relationships. You actually enjoy these things a whole lot more because you won't have this discontentedness that is shaking up your relationships. Because now you have a relationship with somebody and it goes good for a while and then something happens and both of you or one of you are angry or sad or frustrated with each other and your relationship gets shaken up and now you have to spend these this time trying to repair the relationship where when you get rid of all this pollution you can just enjoy the present moment with your partners with your children with your friends and family you won't experience this shaking up of the mind so when you get rid of all this pollution craving being one of the major pollutions of mind you can just enjoy life and all the enjoyment of life without having your mind being shaken up with all these discontent feelings well it seems that uh, nick has a follow-up question let's go to him yes teacher uh in reference to the the child question would you say uh a good start to that would be having them get content in their own skin and 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 a way to do that is through meditation like being content with just sitting still yes that's a big part of it you know you with children you like to take them out and show them these universal truths show them these four noble truths show them the natural laws of existence show them the universal truth of impermanence show them how a tree has green leaves in the tree and the brown leaves on the ground that's impermanence show them how the sidewalk is nice and solid and then it has a crack in it and that's impermanence show them how their toys are brand new and then they got old and broke and that's impermanence show them how their clothes are small and then now they have to get new clothes because their body's changing this is impermanence show them how their teeth are falling out and they're getting new teeth and their teeth are impermanent show them how their hair is impermanent right you show them all these different things show them how you're together with them now but later they have to go to school or you have to go to work so our time together is impermanent but then also when we're away from each other that's impermanent too we're going to be coming back together so you gradually show them these natural laws and help them see them Show them that when they're eating an ice cream, that the ice cream isn't permanent. It starts melting, right? And you gradually show them these things. And yes, meditation is part of it, helping them learn meditation. In order for a child to get away from boredom, they'll have to learn the entire path, just like everyone else. But it takes them a bit of different teaching depending on what their age is. You know, kind of like five, six years old is kind of a good time to start showing a child these teachings and kind of getting them into meditating and things like that but it takes a number of years to really move to the point where they're eliminating boredom 
you know, more and more and more. There's not just one thing that it's not like a pill where you're just like, okay, meditate for the next week and then you'll get rid of your boredom. But surely what you're suggesting, Nick, of doing some meditation and getting content, which is focused on the breath, being comfortable in their own skin, as you're saying, that's definitely a big part of it. But there's all these other parts as well. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. We have a question on Facebook. Denise writes, if you do not reach enlightenment in this life, can someone be reborn as a hungry ghost or are hungry ghosts real? Yes, there's five realms of existence, which we're going to talk about in another class. I think it's around chapter 22, if I remember, maybe chapter 20. So we're only about eight weeks away from that, where we're going to talk about the five realms. But yes, rebirth is part of these natural laws of existence. It's true. It's real. I will share some content on that in the future. Well, since that, uh, this that was a question for Natasha. Okay. So let's talk about the solution to all of this, which you should start seeing. And the more you understand the Four Noble Truths, you'll understand this problem of craving, desire, attachment. So you should start understanding that it's this mental longing. It's this strong eagerness. It's wanting things to be a certain way, right? If I was a teacher and I crave to have a hundred people in my live classes and I just wanted that so badly, but yet I had 50 people in the class, the mind's going to be discontent, right? So any kind of longing, any kind of yearning, even for something like having a certain number of students in a class, or if you have this yearning to be the very best mom or the very best dad, your intentions are great. You would like to be a good mom or a good dad or a good life partner or a good employee. You have the intention of doing that. But it's when you're longing or yearning for it that's going to make the mind discontent. And you can look at your most recent situations where the mind was angry or frustrated or irritated or even when the mind was happy and excited you can look at those most recent occasions and you can look at the craving, desire, attachments that led to that. That's how you prove to yourself that those four noble truths are real. Or you look at when you were discontent when a boyfriend or girlfriend and you split. You were very discontent during that period of time and it wasn't until you let it go that the mind then became peaceful on that particular topic. Right. So you have to be able to see those four noble truths as truth. So every time the mind experiences pleasant feelings, you should be able to see craving, desire, attachments that are causing it. Or when you experience painful feelings, you should be able to see that it's craving, desire, attachment that's causing it or neither painful nor pleasant feelings. You should be able to start seeing that it's craving, desire, attachment that's leading to these conditioned feelings that's shaking up the mind, that's causing discontentedness. The way that we train the mind as the solution to fix this is breathing mindfulness meditation. Breathing mindfulness meditation, focusing on the breath, when the mind moves off the breath and it's yearning for the past or it's longing for the future, that's where you cut that off and you let it go and you come back to the breath. You're training the mind to no longer yearn, have this longing and this strong eagerness. 
So you're not trying to eliminate the thoughts and the feelings from the mind during meditation. That's not what you're really trying to do. What you're trying to do is arise and cultivate this mindfulness or awareness of mind where you're more aware of the mind and what the mind's doing. And when you're aware that the mind is pulling towards the objects of its affection, you know that that's craving and you cut that off, let it go and bring the mind back. And you're doing that repeatedly over multiple sessions where as the mind is longing, you're pulling it back and pulling it back and pulling it back and pulling it back. Over time, the mind gets tired of this. It gets fatigued and eventually it submits. I wouldn't train a dog this way, but essentially what you're doing is if a dog was pulling you on a leash and you kept yanking it back and yanking it back and yanking it back, eventually the dog's going to get the message that, okay, just sit here and be with me because it's going to get fatigued and tired. It takes a really long time with the dog to be able to do that. But eventually, if you kept yanking and yanking and yanking, the dog's going to submit and it's going to be willing to sit right down next to you. Well, your mind is the same way. When it's longing and yearning and going in all these different opposite directions, when you cut that off and you pull it back to the breath, which is the fixed object in your meditation, you're training the mind more and more. Don't long, don't yearn, don't chase after these objects of your affection and come back to the breath. So it's breathing mindfulness meditation where you're arising this mindfulness, being aware of the mind and you're developing your concentration, the ability to focus on just one object, single mindedness. And this will cut down the craving desire attachments. Then with those benefits of meditation in daily life, when you feel the mind pulling toward the objects of its affection, you cut that off, let it go and come back. So if you're in a store and you've got three, four, five, ten pairs of shoes at home and you're walking through the store and you're like, oh, look at that new pair of shoes. I would love to get those. Let me get those shoes. Let me start looking at these different shoes. Ask yourself, do you really need a new pair of shoes or is this just the mind wanting the new pair of shoes, wanting pleasant feelings through purchasing this new pair of shoes. Because if you've already got 10 pairs of shoes at home, what is one more pair? Or if you've got 20 or 30 or 40 pairs, what's one more pair, right? If you've already got 30 or 40 shirts and 30 or 40 pairs of pants, what's one more pair going to do? This is the mind chasing after the pleasant feelings. So when you feel the mind pulling towards the objects of its affection, wanting pleasant feelings, you cut that off and let it go. And it will be easier for you to do that in daily life when you've been training in meditation. Because by training in meditation, you'll be more aware of the mind and you'll observe those cravings easier and be able to cut it off in daily life. As you experience certain discontentedness, you need to cut that off and let it go in daily life. This is what's going to help you is by training and breathing mindfulness meditation so that in your daily life, you can be actively training the mind. So while meditation is a dedicated, active, purposeful training session in your life, in your morning, in your evening, or whenever you decide to do your dedicated, active, purposeful training session, you should really look at it as you're training your mind all day long. 
you're really training the mind all day long, whether you're walking, whether you're sitting, whether you're standing, whether you're lying, you're training your mind all day long. You're observing the mind through mindfulness. And whenever you see the mind is longing with a strong eagerness for something, cut it off and let it go. This is craving. It's an unwholesome root. As long as the mind is longing and craving for something, it's going to lead to unwholesome results. If you allow the mind to chase after pleasant feelings, it's only a matter of time before it experiences painful feelings. So whenever you observe the mind is longing with a strong eagerness, pulling toward the objects of its affection, cut it off and let it go. That's how you're going to train the mind to let go of this craving desire attachment. But you have to do this constantly and continuously in meditation so you get really good at it. And then you have to do this constantly and continuously in daily life that as you're out and about in your daily activities and you see certain things that the mind is longing for, cut it off and let it go. And more and more, you'll bring your discontentedness down and you'll diminish it more and more because the craving desire attachment is diminishing. Then you would also like to practice generosity. It's so, so, so important that you practice generosity on a regular, continuous basis. This is a real challenge for some of us because we tend to hold on to things. We may have been taught to hold on to things and we've been taught that material wealth is going to bring happiness, but it doesn't. Yes, you need to find the middle. You have to sustain your life through a certain income and you have to make sure that you have certain resources available for you in your life in order to take care of you and your families, food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical supplies. But when you fall into that trap of holding on to your life resources, your time, effort, energy, and resources, thinking that this selfish desire is going to somehow please the mind, that's where the mind is holding on. You need to live open-handedly to eliminate selfishness and practice generosity with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers. Be willing to offer to buy people lunch or go out of your office and buy a couple of drinks in terms of like maybe a uh, some fruit smoothies or milkshakes or things like this that you can bring back. You can bring croissants or bagels or things like this occasionally into your office environment or bring things into your home environment occasionally. As you practice generosity more and more, it's going to train your mind to let go, let go, let go. And you can practice generosity to create merit, like we were talking about, where you can make donations and offerings to people who are sharing these teachings. This helps you to train the mind to let go. And this shouldn't be a thing that you do once a year or once every six months. You should practice sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources with people around you on a continuous, ongoing basis. And this is a way for you to not hold on to your time, effort, energy, and resources and eliminate this stain of selfishness. That's what the Buddha calls it, a stain of selfishness. As long as the mind is selfish, it won't experience enlightenment. So if your mind is holding on to your resources or your time, your effort, your energy, your mind isn't going to experience that liberation where it's liberated. So because the problem is the mind holding on and clinging, 
Not only is breathing mindfulness meditation training the mind to let go, but practicing generosity is training the mind to let go. And that's why it needs to be a continuous ongoing thing. If you only practice generosity once a year, that's only once in 365 days. You're not training the mind to let go. So you need to build in a regular practice of generosity. And it doesn't need to be hundreds and thousands of dollars that you're helping people with, or it doesn't need to be, you know, enormous amounts of time, effort, energy, and resources, but you just find little ways to help people regularly throughout your day in your personal and professional relationships. You need to build this into your daily life, whether it's maybe tipping somebody a little extra money when you have a certain service that's being provided to you, or a neighbor or a friend or a family, build in generosity into your practice to train the mind to let go and not be selfish. These are two of the solutions that you need. The third one is what we're gonna talk about next week. I call this identifying your cravings, cultivating non-craving and analysis of the mind. What I'm going to be teaching you next week and what you can read as part of this chapter is in chapter 13, you will learn how to identify certain cravings because essentially what discontentedness is, is it's a red light. It's telling you something's wrong. If you experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, and these are conditioned feelings, That's the red light on your dashboard of your car telling you something's wrong. Pull over, pop the hood, investigate what's going on inside of this mind. And when you analyze the mind and you look at what the craving desire attachments are, once you identify them, then you can eliminate them. So we're going to be talking about that next week. The combination of these three things, which are part of the Eightfold Path, because it's the entire Eightfold Path that is the true solution. That's the true path to resolving the discontentedness, is the Eightfold Path. But breathing mindfulness meditation is part of the Eightfold Path. Generosity and identifying your cravings, all of these things plug into the Eightfold Path in one way or another. So it's the Eightfold Path that is the perfect, complete solution to eliminating discontentedness. But specifically, this problem of craving is antidoted with these three things. Then we've got this problem of anger that we talked about in a previous chapter. And there's specific things to antidote that. And then there's this problem of ignorance or delusion or confusion. And there's certain things to antidote that. And then there's these 10 fetters, these 10 pollutions of mind. There's very specific things to antidote each individual fetter. But from a high level, this craving desire attachment is antidoted with breathing mindfulness meditation, generosity, and then being able to identify these cravings in order to eliminate them. Because how could you ever eliminate your attachments? Remember the third noble truth is the way to eliminate discontentedness is to eliminate craving desire attachment. Well, how could you ever eliminate craving desire attachments if you didn't know what they are? You have to be able to identify what they are. 
in order to eliminate them. So what I'm going to be teaching you next week is how to identify specific craving desire attachments. And it's the discontentedness that is the red light that's kind of like the alarm bell that when you see the mind's angry or frustrated or irritated or annoyed or having guilt or shame or fear, this is the alarm bell. This is the red light telling you there's craving there. Or if you see this conditioned happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, that's the alarm bell. That's the red light telling you that there's craving, desire, attachment there. Or if you see the boredom and loneliness and shyness and displeasure and the uncomfortableness coming into the mind, then you know that, ah, this is the alarm bell. This is the red light telling you there's craving, desire, attachment. What you're going to end up doing as we talk next week is as soon as you see the discontentedness or a few hours later is start to analyze the mind and figure out what are the exact cravings that are causing this anger? What are the exact cravings that are causing this guilt or shame or fear? What are they? And then once you uncover them and you identify them, then you can actively work to eliminate them. So this is everything that I was going to share with you guys today. I would like to just open up to any questions you guys have on what we've discussed today. You can do that by putting your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and then our moderators will see that, or you can raise your hand electronically and ask your questions directly. Let's go to Nick for Facebook questions. Yes, teacher. Adrian has a question. Is there ever an instance where thoughts should not be cut off and instead be addressed? Yes. So what you've got to understand is the difference between meditation versus daily life. Okay. In meditation, when we're doing breathing mindfulness meditation, you should always cut off all thoughts because that's our training. We're training the mind to have this mindfulness, which is awareness of mind. And we're training the mind to let go of thoughts, training the mind to cut them off and come back to the breath. That's the training during meditation cut off all thoughts. But in daily life, what you would like to cut off is you would like to cut off the unwholesome thoughts. So if you're in a business meeting and you're on a particular topic and the mind is going to the past or the future, it's not focused on the meeting, cut that off because it's unwholesome. It's not singleness of mind. You're not focused on what you should be focused on, which is the business meeting. Or if you're in a conversation with your friends or family and your mind is wandering, cut that off and come back to the conversation because that is going to lead to unwholesome results because you're not focused in the conversation. But if you're in the conversation or you're at by yourself and you have a thought, hey, why don't we go to the movies? You don't have to cut that off because that's an idea. That's a thought. Hey, why don't we all go to the movies? And people are either going to say, sure, that sounds great, or no, we're not interested in going, right? So you need to understand the difference between meditation, where you're training the mind to easily let go of thoughts, so you're cutting off everything. But outside of meditation, you're only cutting off the unwholesome thoughts. Whereas if you're thinking about, hmm, let me go snort some cocaine, cut that off, right? Because that's an unwholesome thought. You're not interested in going down that path. Or uh, let me steal something or let me lie, right? These unwholesome things that are part of the five precepts. Cut those off. Let them go. 
those are unwholesome things. But in daily life, when you're having wholesome thoughts, you're like, oh, I have this idea of going out to dinner with my husband tonight. And I think I might ask him out on a date. Let me talk to him and see if he would like to go. Right. You don't have to cut that off. That's a great thing that you can perhaps do with your husband. But you would like to do that without craving desire attachment. You don't want to have these expectations, this longing and this yearning, because if you want to go on this date with your husband really bad and he says no, now you're going to have painful feelings. So if you have this idea of like, hey, why don't we spend some quality time together, husband or wife or whoever you're with, and you ask them to go and they say, yes, okay, well, let's go. Or if they say no, you're like, okay, that's fine. I understand. And you're just content either way, whether they say yes or no. The conditioned feeling is you make this offer. And when you hear, yes, I'll go with you, you get these pleasant feelings. That's the condition. But they're not always going to say yes. Because if you get these pleasant feelings, when they say yes, you got to cut that off because that's based on craving, desire, attachment. If you allow that pleasant feeling to come into the mind, then when they say no someday in the future, you're going to experience painful feelings because you allow the mind to indulge in those pleasant feelings. When they said yes, you based your inner feelings on the condition that they said yes. So if they say yes, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Sure, let's go out and have a night together. If they say no, okay, I understand. Are you feeling that well? Okay, we can do it another time, right? You can be content either way. That's what an enlightened mind is going to experience. But the unenlightened mind, when they say, yes, we'll go out on a date with you, that's when they're going to get all pleasant, excited, happy, elated. But then when they say no, they're going to feel sad. They're going to feel angry. They're going to feel frustrated because the mind is conditioned on the yes or the no. So you would like to get the mind to the middle where it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy no matter what. And in order to do that, you have to be able to cut off the unwholesome thoughts, these conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, or any unwholesome things that are part of like the five precepts or the eightfold path and things like this. Thank you, teacher. Well, I have no other questions on Facebook. All right. Well, uh, Arabasi says, uh, Teacher David, I frequently hear from one individual that I am telling them what is wrong with them. However, that is not my intention. I'm clearly disturbing this person, but upsetting them is not my interest. I'm clearly disturbing this person, but upsetting them is not my interest. I'm not sure what to think or do about this. Yes, yeah, sometimes in our mind, we don't have the intention of harming someone, of course, right? We might be practicing right intention where we're not interested in harming. So we have this intention of harmlessness, but our speech and our actions aren't in sync with our intention. So even though you don't have the intention to harm, the way that you're speaking and the way that you're interacting with others, it sounds like you're trying to control this person and you're trying to constantly tell them what to do and what not to do. If it's someone like a friend or a family member, then they're feeling a bit controlled. I would listen to that if I was you, even though 
you don't feel like you're being controlling, I would ask them questions. Can you give me some examples? Can you share with me the last time that happened? Can you help me see this more clearly? Because see what the unenlightened mind wants to do is when you hear this person say that you're being controlling or you're trying to tell them what to do, you might want to get angry. The unenlightened mind want to get angry about that. But instead, you should flip that around. You should walk towards it and you should say, okay, you're saying that I am trying to control you. I'm trying to tell you what to do. Can you give me some examples so that I can see this more clearly for myself? And then get their feedback and listen to them and internalize it, understand their perspective. You can still be a wise person and reflect on what it is that they're sharing with you. It doesn't mean that they're 100% true. It might be their own perception that you're trying to control them. But you should at least listen to them. You should ask them questions. You should internalize what they're saying and then go away and think about it. The other thing the unenlightened mind might want to do is when you ask them questions to share some insight with you, because of the self, you might sit there and try to defend yourself. No, I wasn't trying to control you. I was trying to do this and do that and do this and do that. Don't do that. If you ask for somebody to give you some insight into what they're experiencing, then just listen to them and ask them lots and lots and lots of questions so that you can penetrate and understand what it is that they're seeing and what their perspective is. And then go away and think about it. Don't sit there and try to defend yourself because you need to get rid of that self. And then by you stepping away and thinking about it, that allows you to internalize it and reflect on it and see if it's really true or not. Because it sounds like to this person, they're feeling like you're telling them what to do, but you're just not seeing it. So you need to ask questions to get the insight from them. Well, for one who has, for example, craving for happiness or children or changing the world, how can breathing, mindfulness, meditation and generosity help eliminating this craving? So if the mind wants children or it wants to change the world or it wants happiness, this is the mind longing for it. So as the mind in meditation is longing for all these different things, you're training the mind to cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. Cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath. And then in daily life, when you're having this feeling of wanting to change the world, then you observe that and you cut it off and let it go and come back. Or you're observing that the mind is longing to have children. There's nothing wrong with having children, but it's the mind longing for it and wanting it that is the problem in the mind. So where you see the mind longing for children or longing for a life partner, you cut that off and let it go. So in meditation, you're training the mind to more easily observe the thoughts and more easily let them go. So that then in daily life, as you're observing the mind and you're seeing the mind longing, maybe you're sitting at a bus stop or you're driving in the car and you start feeling sad because you want kids and you don't have kids. Or you start feeling angry because of your life partner and you want your life partner to be a certain way. Or you are craving to have a new job. And when you see that, you cut that off and let it go and bring the mind back. So it's meditation that's training the mind so that you can be aware of the mind. And then it's training the mind to easily let these thoughts go so that in daily life, these thoughts don't disturb you. Many thanks, teacher. These are all the questions for today. All right. 
Well, I think this was a very interactive and helpful class, perhaps that you learned something in today's class that is going to help you along this path to better understand what the problem in the unenlightened mind is. There's the three poisons. These are the three major problems in the mind. Craving is the problem that leads to discontentedness. And there's these other problems as well. And then there's these 10 fetters. But we're really focusing in on this craving desire attachment because the whole goal of this path to enlightenment is to eliminate discontentedness. And it's craving desire attachment that is causing the discontentedness. So you really need to understand craving is the problem and what is the solution so that you can more and more over time gradually implement the solution to this problem. And if you didn't know what the problem is, the mind would be ignorant. It would be unknowing of true reality. It would have confusion. It would have delusion. And it's not until you understand that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing these conditioned feelings that then once you understand that, you can start gradually implementing the solutions. So if you still aren't seeing that craving is the problem, be sure to ask me questions in the Facebook group send me a private message, schedule a personal guidance session. You can ask more questions in these online classes. Be sure that you deeply dive into understanding craving is the problem. You need to be able to understand this really deeply and really thoroughly. And we're going to be talking about it more next week when we talk about identifying cravings. So you really need to understand the problem and be able to see it when it's arising in your own life. When you see the discontentedness arising in your own life, you need to be able to see that as the problem and then know what the solutions are to fix it. And that's what this week is about and next week as well. But we've really been talking about this throughout the whole program at different times. And we'll continue to talk about it as we go forward in this program. So just be sure that you're doing your work because you're not going to get to enlightenment by just listening to me talk and be like, oh, that's nice. Okay, that's a nice talk. But then you're not meditating. And then you're not being observant of the mind in your daily life and you're not cutting off and letting go of the craving desire attachments if you're not doing the work in your daily life you're not going to experience and observe the progress so these classes are great the books are great the podcasts are great but you need to take these teachings and move them into practice by doing the work applying the effort applying energy investigating these teachings very deeply And think about training the mind as a full-time job. From the time you wake up until the time you go to bed, it's a full-time job. So even when you're in conversations, whether it's a business conversation or a personal conversation, you're observing the mind in that conversation. And wherever you see the mind moving away from the conversation, cut that off and bring it back so you can practice singleness of mind. Whenever you're involved in anything in your daily life, you should be constantly training the mind. Even when you're at work on your computer or you're cleaning houses or you're spending time with your children, whatever you're doing, you're always looking to be on top of your practice. You're always looking to practice right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration and you're constantly building your practice stronger and stronger to come up to this ideal practice of the Eightfold Path. 
So it's a full-time job training this mind. And the more you understand the problems, then you can implement the solutions. So next week on Sunday, we'll be in chapter 13, which is identifying cravings and then cultivating non-craving and analysis of the mind. We're going to be talking about this in more detail next week. So be sure you're reading these chapters either before or after class or maybe even before and after class as a way of helping to bring the teachings into the mind and be able to retain them for longer and longer periods of time. Be sure you're building up your meditation practice where you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation and you're practicing generosity on a regular, consistent, ongoing basis. You need to be determined dedicated and diligent to practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity on a continuous ongoing basis. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation, which if you remember that second poison or that second unwholesome root is anger, hatred, and ill will. So this Wednesday, we're going to be practicing loving kindness meditation, which is transforming the mind away from anger, hatred, and ill will arising this loving kindness and bringing the mind into this genuine interest in seeing other beings be well so that you're training the mind this way in meditation and then you're practicing it in daily life. And gradually, as you wear away this craving, desire, attachment, you'll be experiencing less and less anger. But also by practicing loving kindness, meditation, and then practicing loving kindness in daily life where the, you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful in all situations, then you're transforming this second poison of anger, hatred, and ill will. This third poison of ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, this delusion or confusion, you are transforming that through gaining the wisdom of these teachings, independently verifying the truth for yourself by reading this book, by attending the classes, by listening to the podcast, by asking questions to your teacher, by having personal guidance, by asking questions in the Facebook group, by talking to each other among the community. Maybe you guys discuss the teachings with each other in your personal conversations. This is helping you to arise the wisdom in the mind so that you can antidote that ignorance or that unknowing of true reality. And all of these things are building to eradicate the pollution from the mind so that now you're practicing the teachings of the Eightfold Path more and more and more. So thank you all for joining today's class. I'll see you in a future class, either Wednesday or Sunday, maybe even both of those days. So in the meantime, have a really lovely, wonderful rest of your day. Just always remember to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to everyone around you. We'll see you next time. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice along with learning and practicing these teachings. 
A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.